Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Stamper Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Greetings. And freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Oh, hello there. We have two films to talk about this week, one of which is David Fincher's Mank out on December 4th on, on Netflix, but you can catch some screenings still in cinemas, recommended. It's always better to, if you can catch most films in cinemas. It's in black and white. And it's fair warning for some films are still made in uh, 1939 vision. I thought everything before 1939 was in black and white. We'll have we'll have some thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. Big choices for because for no anyway. And the other film we're talking about is Freaky Friday the Thirteenth. No, it's just Freaky. It was when it was being shot. It was called Freaky Friday the Thirteenth. And uh, you know, if they'd kept that title, it would be really be like we're giving you just exactly what we say. Like that's it. That's you know that's what you get. Um, you still you still get exactly what they promise. So yeah. it's, it's you know it's still a fun romp. So they released this for Friday the Thirteenth, but uh, in America, after three weeks in release, it's coming to video on demand. We're not sure if that's the case in Australia. If it is, it should be out on Friday. Um, but it's available for a pre-order on iTunes now, so maybe they're doing that, but we don't know. So two movies, one of which is definitely going to be available to watch in your home, and the other one is possibly going to be able to watch in your home, and they're both still in cinemas. Still Otherwise, go to your second home. happiest Christmas. Otherwise, go to your second home, the cinema. The happiest season. Season. We haven't covered that. We haven't. I'm hearing really good things about it. I've heard <sighs> decent things. Yeah, it's got a had a pre-run, a host, a host events by Queer Screen, Brisbane Queer Film Festival, Melbourne Queer Film Festival, and now it's going to be instead of Mackenzie Davis, Christian Stewart. Apparently, yeah. Aubrey Plaza's stair game is pretty on point in that film. Alison Brie, good cast. Yeah, oh, actually, Alison Brie. So before we get into the reviews, we want to talk about the news of the week. Moonlight Cinema is screening in Sydney. Uh, back in season. The Lebanese Film Festival Australia is screening online until December 10th. The, the actor are, have events online until, well, actually until tonight. The Fantastic Film Festival Australia have some events coming up. The Children's National Film Festival is playing at the Ritz now until December 13th. Um, the uh, And the Persian Film Festival is screening in Sydney from tomorrow until Sunday. So all things you can catch. And before we get into Mank, which is our first review, Brett is going to give us a bit of a wrap about the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival, which wrapped last Sunday. Yeah, the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival, uh, which I was uh, very happy to see um, come to life. It's been a lot of work, but a lot of fun work. Um, uh, some really good highlights that happened. I think opening night was fun, just to see a lot of people about robots and taking photos. Uh, we had the closing night with Russian Resurrection Film Festival and uh, the Q&A with Alex Price. So that was a great... Uh, that was that was a great uh, thing to just have a, you know, intimate Q&A in a COVID environment, which was fun. Uh, and Chris was there for closing night film coma. I would uh, love to hear his thoughts. I'd no comment. Yes, cool. So that was how that was. Was, was, was that the title of the film or a comment on Chris's state during the screening? Yeah. <laughs> no comments. Uh, the, the best film was uh, the one right before Coma that we screened, Scales, which was the Venice Critics pick from this year called Scales, uh, which is definitely also in black and white. So we have stylistic choices. Hey, big hey, choices Mike. for the sake of big choices. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely the best film in the festival and uh, I was quite blown away by it. So 
Um, if you guys ever want to catch it, uh, that would be an interesting one to catch. Eventually, hopefully, we get to see that it gets played somewhere. Maybe the Ritz might find a home. And it's a very art, art house film. And just to comment on the status of the festival, it's a new festival also having the hybrid function of running it both in person and online. How did that go? Yes, so we, we did a cinema cyberpunk panel online, which was very interesting, uh, hosted by resident critic and, uh, you know, silly light whiskey extraordinaire Travis Johnson. Uh, and that was a lot of fun with a lot of uh, uh, sci-fi inputs. And I think, yeah, just doing it both side by side was an interesting learning. But it was fun to see people in person but also extend that invitation out of people who might not be there in person as well. So, you know, covering both bases. But, yeah, just the Actors Centre is a great venue. I think I've just realised that just to have that and maybe hopefully next year a lot of other festivals might be able to tap into that venue and really uh, maximise that potential. Okay, thank you, Virat. So the first film we are talking about this week is Mank, which is streaming on Netflix tomorrow, and you're listening to Glenn Fowling, Sankrit, Evans, and Virat Nehru on Film Fight Club on 2SCR. This is the first film from David Fincher in six years, following Gone Girl. Yeah. Long he's, time. He's been busy doing other stuff at Netflix, like Mindhunter. Yes, and which unfortunately is not re- apparently not renewing for a third season, but he does have a four-year exclusive deal with Netflix. Yeah, he's, they were saying that part of the reason for Mindhunter not going ahead is it's just not profitable. But I feel like the real thing might be that Fincher just wants to make movies because I saw an interview where he was saying he feels like he is too old to have only made like 10 movies and he wants to build a body of work. So I expect Fincher is going to speed up his creative process and we'll see a more than one movie come out of his Netflix four-year contract. Great. It's just what we want. It's like the old studio system, something we'll be getting into when talking about (laughs) this film. Talking about Mank. Mank is about Herman Mankiewicz, played by Gary Oldman, and is a dramatic retelling. We stress a dramatic narrative retelling and a version of the story behind the writing of the script for Citizen Kane, a film that many still believe is the greatest film, if not one of the greatest films ever made. It's, as said, Gary Oldman, Charles Dance, reuniting with David Fincher, Amanda Seyfried, and a number of others. It's hotly anticipated and is being also hotly debated and is po- very heavily based on Pauline Kael's, it must be said, controversial essay in The New Yorker in the 1970s. I'll have some thoughts to say on that. <laughs> but uh, it, it's such a tangential rant that I feel like we should talk about what the film is before I start my anger at what it's not. Yes. What your theory is shit. I'd like- Nonetheless, <laughs> it's, this is almost like, okay, you've got me started now. This is almost like we're going to answer to vener- uh, auto theory, venerating Orson Welles too much and taking away from the process of collaboration. And our answer to that is like, let's just overly venerate one person. You know, it, it's okay to share credit, but we'll, we'll get to we'll, that. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, just yeah. a comment on... Broadly, both the film and the controversy that surrounds it, people have been objecting that the film is not an accurate retelling of the events. So there are conflicting accounts of the production of the screenplay. I don't have an issue with that. The same with Crown Season 4. It's always been up front that this is a entertaining, supposed to be a piece of entertainment. And it is an account which speaks to, yes, the auteur theory and also highlighting a figure who is not as well known today as Orson Welles and others. And that is the function of this first and foremost. Should we get into it? All right. I said I'd get into it later, but let's just get it out of the way. Let's get the elephant out of the room first. Okay. It doesn't matter that there are varying accounts, right? Um, After Pauline Kael's essay where she accused Orson Welles of stealing the credit from Makovitz for Citizen Kane's screenplay, where she essentially said that Orson Welles wrote nothing, um, 
this created a lot of controversy and back and forward and debate. And so research was done to settle the account. In Ted Turner's personal archives, every draft of Citizen Kane was collected, as well as production notes. There's no debate anymore than Orson Welles co-wrote the film. Um, this film, it's, it's not a major part of the script. Apparently it was a, a major part of the first draft, which just took Pauline Kael at her word. It must be said, written by Jack Finch, David Finch's uh, now deceased father. That's right. And in the meantime, there have been rewrites by Eric Roth and David Fincher. Um, and he wanted to tone that down because he found that aspect of the film to be too over the top and painting Orson Welles as a villain. However, at the end of the film, it still runs with, you know, you can come away with the interpretation that Wells just stole the credit. There's some line at the end about, oh, about Wells only having a credit of, because of the magic of the movies. And to me, it's upsetting because we, we know now, as I was saying, that regardless of petty disputes, that th this claim isn't true. Um, Wells has been proven to have actually written a significant portion of the film. They, they, the shared credit is accurate. That you know, there's not actually it's 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 not a real debate. Kale's essay was incredibly poorly researched and full of er of erroneous statements. All right, two things to that. Pauline, I haven't read Pauline Kale's 2000 word essay. I've read a lot of commentary, notably um, also published in the Yorker was Richard Brody's recent peach piece, which pointed out that she did not actually interview any people who were directly involved in the production of the screenplay. Having said that, that the decision to produce it as such and have this focus is itself, in my view, one of the interesting functions of the film because it is also a commentary on how we um, internalize media, how we internalize historical history within media, as is Citizen Kane. Mm. Citizen Kane is a hotly debated account of the life of William Randolph Hearst. There are bits that are considered real, there are bits considered deliberately fake, and there are bits that are considered dramatic license. So I do not have a problem with David Fincher making a film in a similar manner as whether it be um, Mangovitz or Wells or either or both or many others sought to tell another still also enduring historical narrative. I think the issue is that um, whenever you put a film, this is true of every film based on history or based crown, on fact. The Crown season four. Right. Whenever you put out a film that's based on fact, people are going to take what it says is true. I saw a Q&A with Alex Mankiewicz um, at, at the Ritz after seeing the film. And someone who just watched the film asked a question about the myth of, um, of collaboration in Hollywood and how interesting it was that Orson Welles only won an Oscar for the writing, which, to quote this person in the audience, he didn't actually do. Um, so the, the film is essentially perpetuating a falsehood. I understand this idea about um, different perspectives and such, but it's really time to put this thing to, to bed. It's not, like I have said at the outset, it's not a debate. It was a debate in the 70s, but that only came about because of a poorly researched article that put forward a bunch of untrue statements and we're keeping them alive you know by giving that them this air which doesn't mean we can't enjoy the film no that's that's true i st still enjoyed the film and i think this is a fairly minor part of the film it's just upsetting hearing you know people like coming out of, away from this film and saying oh isn't it interesting how orson welles didn't actually write the script when this falsehood actually really hurt him during his career it's one of those anything to do research yeah it came about at a point where he was really struggling to find funding and it made it worse because of the prevailing attitude at the time from people who weren't familiar with his other films 
that Wells was this guy who came out of the bat with you know with this this one work and then flopped afterwards and it li- it adds credence to like this should actively encourage anyone with, as with any other text to go ahead do your research learn more about the subject go watch Citizen Kane and nothing else yeah yeah I mean uh, I think the major point that we made and I think I agree with that is the fact that uh, firstly uh, we should be smart enough to differentiate even if something is you know, part of the movies or whatever, you know, even it is claiming to be based on fact, it is based on fact. It's not It's fact. not, yeah. it's not. The, you know, the, people the should facts, be able yeah. to differentiate that and do their own research. If they're gullible enough that they believe everything, maybe they're not, well, they don't understand what the function of the movies is to begin with. And to that, and speaking to now the film itself and how it put its story forward, this is set in such a deliberately heightened milieu, both by the set design and both by how most, how most of the actors put forward uh, their performances. It's very evocative of a particular style of late 30s, late 40s cinema, which is resplendent with Citizen Kane, where people like Wells took performance and cinema stylings from a theatre background, so it is heightened, and it do- there is an artifice of cinema, and it does seem not fake, but exaggerated, and this is this is evident within the set design and else, and yes, also the black and white cinema, which draws attention to itself in the modern context. Okay, to that, the last point I'll make about the <laughs> whole Orson Welles stole the script. You know, um, it it's kind of disrespectful. Well, it's it's a slap it, uh, in the face, really, to Welles' memory. I think to make a film based on his style that you know perpetuates a falsehood about stealing credit do you know what i mean like it's like to make build the film around orson welles directorial choices like it's a tribute it, it, it but also push the the line that wells is a, a credit thief and you know i, I don't think, anyway I'll, i, I I'll don't think i don't think it's that insidious point. i think what fincher is trying to do and what glenn is suggesting and i kind of agree with that is the idea that look at this meta-narrative, right? Citizen Kane was about fact and fiction getting blurred. This film is also about, you know, where does fact end and fiction begin? And in a way, it's a tribute to Citizen Kane and those kind of era films. So, and I think evoking that time period and using those similar stylistic choices is just an extension of that. So if anything, this film actually retrospectively does Orson Welles good because it is paying him a tribute. Yeah, But, But you know what? But this, it, but this is all predicated on the idea that, again, Citizen Kane is itself about one thing and aping one thing, and it's not. Yes, William Randolph's Hearst name is inextricably tied to the film, and understandings of the film and modern interpretations are tied to him. But as Mank reminds us, Citizen Kane is about so much more. It's about Upton Sinclair. It's about political machinations. And when I first saw Citizen Kane, I've seen it since. When I first saw Citizen Kane, I, I didn't know who William Randolph Hearst was. I subsequently learned. And I took from it both the parodies of The Simpsons, which I'd seen previously, but that it was a parable about loss of innocence, mm. about um, what how you could fall from grace if um, you give up on your values. And then it, it's about much, yes, it is about Hearst, but it's about much broader issues. And that's why there were no real direct allusions to Hearst in the film. It wasn't a biopic. It was True. a commentary, yes, on him, but more broadly on the time. It was something for the Algonquin Roundtable to sit around and enjoy. This is not really a statement about the quality of the film, more just a, a kind of observation on its place in culture. But how weird is it now that we've got this movie about you know the background events to Citizen Kane made in a style 
aping the aesthetics of Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is a fictionalized, but you know, a, a fictional biography inspired. And so by much real better, people. it must be said. I was going to get to that. Oof. Yeah, a fictional biography um, based on, in part on real people, and here we have this fictionalized biography about the people. It's just leading to this weird extended movie narrative, like all the truth is vanishing into just movies. Yeah, you I mean, know, like 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 what I was saying earlier about when there's a film based on true events. Yeah. To a lot of people, that becomes the truth. Well, but part of the and problem... now it's all absorbed into the sprawling movie moviness of everything. But part of the problem <laughs> yeah. I had with the film, and I think this is just an overall feeling more than the actual specifics of it, is it's basically the meta narrative makes it almost too cerebrally clever, and it's not human enough. I There's agree. not enough typical David Fincher. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Zodiac, hello. But it's it's a problem where Fincher has where he thinks it's just so clever on paper and it's like this has to be done because it's so indeed clever. And it, it is clever. But at the same time, is it saying much more than what we just alluded to, mm. right? You know, the magic of the movies and the moviness of it all. Well, is there a human element beyond that? I don't I, think, I, I think I, there, there is. is. I think, I think oh, so just to pop back to Chris' point for a moment, I think we're overestimating how upset Orson Welles might be with a film like this. I think that he would take he, the view in... Well, I, I want to finish, but go ahead. I was just going to say he was very upset with people saying he didn't co-write the script at the time. Like, very, very upset. My point is that if I think if he saw this film, he'd see this and he'd see someone he's himself portrayed in at least I believe as I mentioned he would take in a generally good light certainly towards the end the film portrays him much better than Mank and I think Orson Welles was someone who subscribed to the adage say what you want about me spell my name right and help me get myself out there to the nature of the film as being not emotive or actually engaged with any particular character I think this is actually to some extent a failing of I like Gary Oldman I think he's good in this as he is in anything else but he is playing a the way, whether it's the both the prosthetics and the nature of his performance, is he wearing prosthetics? So there's the makeup. Excuse me, the makeup. I, I think he's actually going without makeup. There is some aging makeup at different times in the film. Okay, but I think he's largely doing it without makeup, from what I've read about making of stuff. But I might be misremembering details. He is playing a type of character um, with his screen presence and physicality very similar to roles he has played over the past little while. In the 90s, we saw Gary Oldman experiment incredibly well with like The Fifth Element, Leon, Sid and Nancy. Here, we're seeing something not too distinct from Darkest Hour and others. So he's a little relaxed in this performance. He's not as dramatically engaged. I don't think Amanda Seyfried is as good an actor, but she gives a lot more to it. I actually think Charles Dance is the best performer he's herein. He's really as good as Hurst. He, he could, it, would, it would have been so easy to make Hearst as the villain, because everyone knows Hearst now as a villain, but he actually makes him quite, and probably the most, one of the more empathetic figures in this, as I would say, would be Joseph Mankiewicz. With, yeah, but without taking away from the sinister power that he yes. wields. Yeah. There's a nuance to it, which wasn't evident throughout much else of the picture, but there isn't a character that is overwhelmingly sympathetic that we can latch onto. I argue with the exception of the Amanda Seyfried character, I think the film would have been really lax without. And actually, that was my favorite thing about it, the relationship, the very nuanced relationship between her character and um, Mank. Yeah. I was also just, uh, you know, in a broad picture sense, just thinking about the connection that Netflix, who also released 
Wells' uh, incomplete work, The Other yeah, Side of the Wind, wind yeah. is also now releasing Mank, which is kind of trashing Wells as well. So there's a, a sort of <laughs> big picture well, irony, irony there. Irony? I, don't, I don't think Mank it's trash. Yeah. Again, my earlier point, I yeah, don't think it's trashing I don't Wells. Think it's tra- I think Mank is, is weirdly positioned between a tribute um, and... Uh, and Can't quite decide. Trashing is too heavy a word, but yeah. yeah, going a bit in that direction. But things I liked about the film... Um, I really liked the depiction of Hollywood and Hollywood politics. I love how in this big opening shot of the Paramount Studios backlot, right across the middle of the frame, we've got this strong man guy twirling around. Uh, oh, the recreations of the backlot. It's always romancing these films about films, but it looks but, more realistic and it looked loved and lived in. And here it really, I think, set um, in visuals the notion that this is a carnival. This isn't high art. This is, you know, we've got circus performer type characters crossing the frame. It, it grounds that idea that Mank is uh, uh, slumming it in his own feel, you know, words and feelings by staying there. He thinks of himself as a, uh, an artist who's just doing cheap work for the money. Yeah. Um, but there was a good discussion to that effect with some of the other studio heads. I loved and, and the... among the writers as well. I, I liked how it foregrounded that aspect of Mank's career um, and the place that writing Citizen Kane comes to have for him and, and like as, as a shot at redemption. I think it did a good job of setting up his failures and his sort of precarious social position and his alcoholism. Yeah. The opening acts in that regard were great, where we see uh, different versions of classic Hollywood films, a very Hail Caesar element, mm-hmm. but not so tongue-in-cheek. It, they were looking for more realistic and accurate recreations. Uh, we talked about Sunset Boulevard earlier in the year and how it's one of the only films, it's only the best film to look into the really sinister aspects of old Hollywood. And this is a film that met that has some scenes that very nearly measure up. I'm referring to the scenes in William Randolph Hearst's mansion, which are eerie and gothic, but also have this strange, absurd quality. Um, the Citizen Kane also is a film that handled this motif very well, where you had the mansion and the swinging monkeys, as we saw in this movie too. But then you had these absurd elements cu- coming in. Um, I loved every moment where we had this giant long table and Hearst at one end and people pontificating. And that lent so much credence to this idea of how all Hollywood operated. I loved the depiction of Louis B. Mayer. Um, I did too, performance, yeah. but also his place. So it gave you an idea of this, the monumental strength this figure had in Hollywood. I do think it's a little ridiculous that pretend that Louis B. Mayer didn't know what a concentration camp was in 1934. But a lot of things in in this film seem to be pushing at the facts a bit. There are a few moments where I um, it pushed to the point where I was starting to think this can't have actually happened. Um, I'm okay with taking dramatic license to get at the essence of the facts instead of what actually happened. Again, but, the crown. Yeah, I'm fine with that. But there were points in this that were a little bit too much. Like um, I'm thinking of something that happens on the election night. Oh, yes, the, the, the treatment film. of fake news. It's very on the nose. Yes, there's something that was handled in Citizen Kane. Yes, it's making a point. I appreciate the analogy they're trying to draw with modern politics, particularly Trump, but all these elements and discussions around fake news, fake news reels, yes, pointed, yes, relevant, but as depicted, extremely on the nose. Yeah. I I, I think overall that's the problem with Fincher, right? It's it's the fact that he doesn't know when to stop. It, it's like, you know, yes, you're making a clever meta-narrative, but not everything has to be... Ah, this can be connected back to today's thing, you know, and this could be cool to throw in. As an aside, it works, but in a film which is kind of already pretty overcrowded, I was wondering if more of a human through line could have worked better than just trying to 
you know, tick so many boxes that it was trying to do. Yes, it's a movie about, you know, Hollywood politics. It's, it's about alcoholism. also about politics it's, outside of Hollywood. Yeah, it's about, it's, it's American about politics. so many things. And beyond a certain point in time, what I felt was it was lacking a central... Yeah, like what redemption is the arc? Like what is what is the one thing that you would want to take away I from the agree, film? I agree, actually. Like it it does, does it, does it tell work? an interesting story in terms of about like about many things, but it, not about yeah, because anything. <laughs> I, what what it's setting out to do is like oh, the, these things inspired Mank, um, and this plays into Citizen Kane. I think there's been some manipulation of the facts. Um, in order to but that's push Mank's role but, a bit but even more. but even then after like, like the takeaway, like once I'm the out of the cinema, effect. out of the cinema, I was like okay. Yeah, all these little bits and pieces. But it's not so as focused as it could be about, as yeah. you say, the the emotional kick for Manx's character. It's, you know, it's, because it's, it's, not even... it's tried to be a bit like Citizen Kane with the that jumping back and forth in time structure. Yeah, I but, would I love mean, I would love it to be even if this was all about Manx's redemption. That right. could even be one arc. But that's like every arc is explored for a little bit, but it's like a small dangling thread. And let's be clear: if the function of the film is to set the historical record straight, then that's not the function of dramatic narrative film and the film has um, fundamentally failed. And when the film has also just failed because it yeah. doesn't set the, narr- the record straight about really anything. Yeah. It's a very fictionalized but, film. But there's, there is more to it in fairness. If it is a film about interrogating how the themes of the production of Citizen Kane were reflected uh, both in the retelling of Citizen Kane but in today, that it can be interesting. If it's about... Um, political uh, dynamism, sure. But again, it's very minimally about that. Citizen Kane delves into that in much more detail. Is it about loss of innocence? To some degree, but not really. It jumps between the different themes. There's some core interesting relationships at the center of the film, but I think more interesting and even more in line with the themes that the film is trying to purport and that Kane is all about are the relationships which aren't front and center. Wells is such an interesting historical figure. Yes, I know films have been made about him. Yes, I know Mank is the central character. He's also an interesting figure. But the film would have been better if there was more for Wells. And the guy who played Wells was great. The scenes of Wells was great. I wanted more interaction between Mank and Wells. I wanted to know more about the dynamic between and Wells and between Hearst. And none of that was present. Wells, I mean, it's not like it. Uh, there was no place for Wells in this narrative. They spent seven weeks late discussing the movie and, and coming up with the ideas before Mank went to write and Orson Welles often dropped in not just to have arguments about screen credit as in this film but to, mm. to share ideas and such while Mank was writing so yeah. why not why not feature that it, it, it would have been great um, a little, they, they touched on the history of RKO again really interesting and again this idea of um, creative freedom versus studio control and that's actually what's also really interesting about this and again on the meta level netflix to their credit have given fincher and many other directors creative freedom mm. as this film shows orson wells was given by rko yeah. there's a meta aspect to it it's great to explore the tension between um studio constraints and creative freedom of a outward and zealous individual like fincher and yes like wells mm. why not explore this more there are broad universal relatable aspects to this the film could have been so much better if that was the through line but there was some standard one the film absent a real plot and there isn't actually a real plot in this things that the story thinks that a story is enough to move it along it's the same criticism i made a couple of weeks about the queen's gambit great story lacking a really substantive plot it's not enough to have 
a great story. And also with Fincher, he has look, he has made many great films and many great twists. And he always has to have these moments of this great aha moment. Fight Club famously had one. Obviously, Panic Room, Gone Girl famously. This tries. For those that the narrative doesn't beget it or facilitate it, there's a what's supposed to be an amazing revelation moment uh, when Mank and Hearst are discussing things at the dining table, but it doesn't play as such. And I think Fincher thinks it packs much more of a punch than it actually does. I felt... Fincher, by tradition, just has to have these moments in the film, but it wasn't present here, and trying to make it happen made the film feel dramatically strained. And just, um, just instead of being straight aha moment, it's this, oh, why do we even go there moment? What did we actually think of the political angle of the film generally? Um, relevant today, I wish it had been explored more. I honestly think Citizen Kane handled these themes better 70 years ago. But outside of the relevance, outside of the relevance to today... Did you actually enjoy it on that level? Like the, the political storyline? I actually I, really did. To I, be did. Like, we're being, we're, I, I did. Thought, I thought it, it's just the idea of um, the link between the work and seeing what's going on there and unionization and becoming politically active and to what extent do you become politically active when you have friends who are feeding you uh, opposed to your ideals yeah. I thought it was genuinely interesting I did, I did too and I and we're being really critical and I know if there was any other director than Fincher would be more recently films praised a little more but we are a little more critical because it is a director who That's right. has Let's such be, a storied history it's a good film but we'll get onto it more on the podcast we've run out of time for now as we will be talking about Freaky the new Vince Vaughn Catherine Newton film the directors are from the director of Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to you yep. stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin this has been Glenn Falkenstein Chris Evans and Varat Nehru let us know what you want us to fight about. We'll be back next week with more festival coverage, talking more movies, whether it be streaming. I'm sure there's going to be less of a distinction now between streaming and what is in cinemas at any given time. Seems like it. Wonder uh, Woman's coming out at the Christmas on streaming. Yeah, as is a bunch of terrible Netflix Christmas movies, which I can't wait to watch. You'll have a happier season of movies. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Bye Good bye. night. Welcome back to Film Fight Club, where we're talking... Mank, Mank for a little bit more, I guess. Yeah, I, I look. There's something that you've kept touching on. <laughs> Glenn just shrugged. I, I get that. It's like, what? It, what else is there left to say? Like, it, it. We were all saying before we started recording this that the film just kind of dissipates from your mind pretty quickly. I think it's because it doesn't get its hooks in deep enough on an emotional level. I did, and yeah, you know, that, that's, can, yeah. that's that's my major complaint. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's it's about nothing. It's about a lot of things, but it's about nothing. Yeah. I think yeah. it's meant to be about. You're right. What is it about? It is. It's about lots of things, and <laughs> yeah. all those things are interesting, but probably needed more focus. Yeah, they're for me, all, they're individually all interesting, and they could be like at yeah. least five, six movies in there. Yeah, if you yeah. actually explored one of them the in detail, yeah. the political story. Telling why wasn't this a miniseries? This could have been a miniseries. The Queen's Gambit could have been a two-hour movie. Same issue. Yeah. I don't know why. The political storytelling I was just talking, asking you about before was actually my favorite thing about this film and and the most interesting thing it was about and, and, and that could be the whole film and that's 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 the major problem this film just doesn't know what it wants to do with the material it does have yeah i mean these are all interesting things the screenplay is all over the place because of that and and, and, you, have, and you have to ask and it comes down to describing a film you ask someone what is citizen kane about citizen kane they'll tell you it's about either loss of innocence fall from grace or how politics Power corrupts. corrupts. If you ask someone what manga is about, they're going to say it's about a screenwriter who wrote a, play, a screenplay for a really good film. There's an important distinction there. Citizen mm. Kane Citizen, is about many things. Mank is not. Someone boiled down to Citizen, Citizen Kane to 
money doesn't buy happiness, which is basically right. Great. But that, they, that's but a they, plot for a movie. Were, Fine. But they were saying it, it, it's it, the genius of Citizen Kane is how it elevates such a simple kind of premise and message and, and to make it profound. Exactly. Um, like the message could be simple. And that's, we're not, I'm not begetting the fact that the message could be whatever it needs to be and that it needs to be layers in there. But the problem with the film is uh, I need something more because these are all sort of like mini series ideas. And sometimes it's just, just, you know, slapping things on the wall. It's weird today that we're, we're, it, sometimes it feels like we're fighting a good fight over here for the, the continuation of cinema. And yet half the movies we watch are like, yeah, this would be better as a miniseries. And a lot of miniseries <laughs> would be better as movies. That's right. Material. Yeah. A lot, you, you, watch, you know, um, this is uh, the Happy Death Day thing has probably got me in mind of this. Did you guys ever watch Russian Doll? Yeah. It was like, yeah. What, what if Groundhog Day was a series? And yeah. guess what? Would have been better as a movie like Groundhog Day. Yeah. Wednesday. What a concept. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Mank, um, as Glenn has kept alluding to, it's nowhere near as good as Citizen Kane. I made the mistake of watching it the same day that I watched Citizen Kane for the first time in years on the 35mm print. And Orson Welles is just so much more imaginative as a director. Yeah. You know, Welles is using all the tools available to yeah. him and being really free in terms of how to structure a scene as well as a film. Yeah, aesthetically, yeah. this was flat. That's I mean, right. That's actually the problem. Like, even as a directorial choice... Fincher, I mean, whatever, you can use grain and like make it black and white, you can make it all But it doesn't really want. feel, yeah, I, I don't like so the flat. artificial. It's really flat in terms of framing. I don't like the artificial um, film grain and not just film grain, but also it's like so cigarette burns and like occasional like It damage. looks fake. I don't, yeah, it lo- why? It, it, looks, it looks like lo-fi 40s chic. But real, it really is, in the truest sense of the word, pretentious. And kind of disrespectful. Why do that? Yeah, it yeah. feels disrespectful. Like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, this is cool now. No, it's not cool. These were the technology that was available at the time. It's meant to be a tribute. There's a couple of things. With the style they're going for, I'm always struck by... Actually, I'll I'll use the open example where the the snow globe falls at the beginning of Citizen Kane and the beautiful wide fisheye shot of the nurse coming towards him. Mm. And that's aped when Mank drops something at the beginning of the film. It's just not nearly as visually creative nor original. And I referred earlier to the sequence with the monkeys, which is aping the scene, the opening scene also, where we see the monkeys swinging at the hotel. And it's meant to evoke this idea of classic um, Eastern European folklore, this lost um, figure, otherworldly, somewhere else, whereas here... Yes, it looked fake, but it still evoked that ideal. Mm. Here, Fincher has copied the fakeness of it as if that is itself is a point. No, it when we see the monkey swinging here, it doesn't have any of either either that impact or anything on any level akin to that. It doesn't impart you with a sense of why does it need to be here? Because if if there's so much artifice in this film. It draws attention to itself and often for only the reason to show that the filmmakers are clever or visually capable of doing this, which isn't a function of itself. The decisions Wells made in Sinners and Kane served a purpose. They were great. the story. And like him standing on, I think there's actually just a publicity shot for the film, but him standing on all the newspapers, Kane, 
beautiful oh, yeah. stuff. The, all the newspapers are there, and that, that shot's in the film, but Wells came and jumped in front of it because he knew how good a shot it was and, yeah. and took the photo which, yeah. <laughs> um, for the publicity. Yeah. The, the amazing scene where, and I don't know why they didn't try to mimic this, but the amazing scene where they zoom in and he's giving the speech, which is about nothing, the amazing political speech of Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And which is about we, how uh, it was. it's all just attack. And we see Upton Sinclair on the just from the back talking about politics and it's just not nearly as interesting and engaging i think it's meant to be um serving a totally different purpose here though the point in citizen kane is how grandiose it is and it's taking a little bit from nazi riefenstahlis aesthetics <laughs> um but the point in upton sinclair i think it's meant to contrast uh, in mank it's meant to contrast with that scene of wells and kane because it's it's meant to show this guy doesn't have so much money and, and backing behind it and he's a man of the people I think that's what the the Sinclair shot was meant to be. I think that's why he's he's shown in this like little um, urban space. It seems like a community center type arrangement. He's just standing on a little piece of wood, and you can barely even see his face. And the last thing for me on the Citizen Kane comparison, I know it's absurdly unfair to compare any film to Citizen Kane, but the film is encouraging those comparisons for the simple reason that it is a film that is about Citizen Kane. It is mimicking Citizen Kane. We can't help but do it, and therefore we have to compare it. Yeah, it's it's funny you say that. I was just about to make that point as the only thing that still needs to be said. Why put yourself in the position to be compared to Citizen Kane if you're not going to be able to, like, to match the filmmaking on any level. I'm fine if they do. Maybe they thought they or... could, but either, but, but they, they simply could not. And, and therefore the film yeah, um, you, is stark in comparison to something so, so much better you can and have, so much more loved. If he had just gone with a more typical David Fincher aesthetic and made this really ultra-clean, digital-looking thing, the, the, the really crisp clinical shots like he usually does, he would have dodged the bullet there. We would have taken it as, okay, it's a story about Citizen Kane, but aesthetically it's standards on its own two feet. This film is asking you to... But he couldn't oh, resist it. Yeah, and it's... It, it's, the, it's that Fincher, you know... Yeah, and it's just asking... Arrogance coming through. It's like, you know, it's cerebral enough, so maybe I can get away with it. Uh, he's asking you to compare it to Citizen Kane. He's constantly saying, look at how much this thing is like Citizen Kane, and look at how much this is analogous to... But also, it's cheap nostalgia, Same right? with the Psycho remake. Not that it's the Psycho I don't well, think it's cheap nostalgia for the yeah. reason that Citizen Kane is I, I, still so much in the zeitgeist. And we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't have nostalgia I'm, for Citizen Kane. It is, not, I'm going to look back on like, fondly. Okay, I have just two... Just aping Citizen Kane aesthetically when you know that you aren't doing much with it. I have, is actually cheap nostalgia, I, I feel. Uh, look, I have two like differing know. kind of perspectives on this. When it comes to cheap nostalgia, I actually found this film refreshing compared to most of the recent like eight movies, grand things, and having a very unflattering depiction of Hollywood and the workings of Hollywood. Agreed. It's not really about, like, look at how magical the movies are. It's Hence more the of, Billy Wilder comparison earlier. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, a, it's about desperate characters on the fringes in Hollywood and the bad things that go on there. And... On that level, I appreciated it. I, it. You know, it's not just going for the typical Oscar-baiting approach of Hollywood wanks itself off, but it does um, still... Yeah, this is on the podcast. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it does still fit into that... Um, we can say wank on to SER, surely. But anyway. Um, yeah, it, it rhymes with man. It's independent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. Yeah, there's my one-word review. No, I actually <laughs> like this film overall. 
I'm being very critical, but as Glenn says, it's a Fincher movie. You know, yeah. we we come in with high expectations, I, and I it's like a film. This compared, film. I'm not going to think tame. about it in a month, but I like. That's it. right. I'm it, glad it, I saw it. it. But, but it I, I liked mind. it because I grew up with this history. I love this history. I want to learn about it. It's tied to the story rather and than the I plot was, or the characters. And I um, am fascinated by the world of 30s Hollywood. You know, I'm fascinated by all these little side characters and the political currents behind the scenes that are leading to some of the big decisions that shape the future of the cinema. I think if you're really into cinema that much, all this kind of tangential stuff is interesting. So on that level, it is interesting. But even though I don't find it, as I was saying, to be really pressing that lovey nostalgia button, as a lot of things, too many things have been lately... I still am just getting sick of like, oh, it's like a thing from another time, you know, like um, like the lighthouse, or any number of movies, you know. There's no so reason friends were talking about the lighthouse. Being black and white. There's yeah. no reason. friends were talking about the lighthouse like a, a week ago, which is why that that came to my mind. But yeah, you know, it's just like wow. We've recreated the aesthetics of the '40s, and it's like, okay, I mean, I'm great. A, is it, are I'm we just a, retreating but from the filmmaking? Present day? Has gone better than picture quality has gone better than yeah. as we've seen in Finch's films. Are we? Are why? Why? Why, why degrade? Why are we hiding? Go back. Is that it? Are we just hiding from the present day? I mean, retreating I'm, I'm, into. I'm oh, we recreated exactly how well you know things were done back then, and like, no one with a big budget, I think, is really pushing aesthetics today. And that's a shame. Instead of, you know, to see someone like Fincher spending his time on, like, look how well I've recreated the 40s. But not, he hasn't done that good a job. That's the problem. It just looks yeah. like a conventional, a very conventionally shot film. Very, like, well, it's not like this guy's a bad director. But it looks like any conventional end-of-season, uh, end-of-year Oscar drama. But it's in black and white with a few shots that are a bit like Kane. It doesn't, it's failed in his ambition to make a film that really feels contemporaneous to Kane and like it slipped out of that era. It doesn't feel like that at all. Although I did appreciate the old school sound recording. It sounds very kind of like muffly and like there's a distinct timbre to the microphones that you don't hear today, that old timey sound. But still, it's like, all right, you, you pulled it off and... I mean, ironically, I mean, uh, we were just talking about and how genre pushing and also how convention um, bold in terms of the filmmaking Citizen Kane was. Yeah. Uh, for a film that is of 2020, oh, this yeah. film is not pushing its boundaries pushing from anything. a 2020 boundaries in terms of like this could be like this could be really cool in 10 years. No, everything no, yeah. we've seen all this. In fact, it's. But that's the nostalgia trap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wish that. Focused on, I focused on to mention the story what was more interesting or novel or I wish you know what what everything I got from this film I can get from any number of source material yeah. about this era. I that mean is, if, if that would be really interesting, sorry, just the last point. What would be really interesting would be like if let's say Citizen Kane is boundary pushing, this film also tried to push boundaries. If you really want to mimic Citizen Kane, that is the actual one crux thing pushing that boundaries. should be going for, at least in terms of filmmaking. You know, it tells a story that's taboo. That was taboo then. No one wanted to touch this yeah. back in the day. And you know what? Actually, what's more interesting? The story behind releasing Citizen Kane. No one, they, they, the, the studios. Well, speech to stop the, the film from being the, destroyed. The studios were who owned a lot of picture houses was under such pressure not to screen it. But there were individual screenings. Out of one screening in New York, where it was so popular and so well received, word of mouth meant the audiences wanted to see it. And it was a flop. But it made money and got out of it just because it was so goddamn good. That's a story 
I want to see that told on film. And yeah, maybe it's not um, something that's pushing a bigger boundary, or maybe it's not something that's attacking a historical figure, or, or at least speaking to truth to power, but something that speaks to a broader human condition than this film did. That is Mank. It is screening from tomorrow on Netflix. The next film we're talking about is Freaky. It is from the director of Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. It is a comedy slasher starring Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton. It is a combination of the plots of the Freaky films and any number Freaky of... Freaky Friday. Freaky Friday. And um, broadly speaking, Halloween, Friday the 13th. Yeah. And it is... It's set a, on Friday the 13th and it's Freaky Friday. Yeah. Essentially a deranged serial killer played by Vince Vaughn and a teenager played by Catherine Newton from Blockers and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri switch bodies. That's the entire, that's everything you need to know about this film before going into the film. The premise is good. It's a great premise and I'm actually surprised it hasn't been done before. And it is a great premise. Yeah. yeah. And with only with a few exceptions, which I'm very looking forward to getting into the execution doesn't match. It's largely unimaginative. I found it's so unimaginative. It's just so derivative of both shocker and com and comedy slasher films. I think the film did get a, a little bit better when Vaughn and Newton switch character switch roles. I think Vaughn. This is the perfect film for. Him. I think he would have signed on just see, having seen the premise. He's great. There, the, the actors are great. There are individual scenes where it works because of either the novelty of the premise kicking in or because there are enjoyable moments. Um, the scene where they figure out that they're in different bodies is great. And an arcade scene later in the film, which we'll get into, which I absolutely loved. The issue with this film to me um, is that there's just so many missed opportunities in the writing and, and, the, and in the direction, honestly. Case in point, the Vince Vaughn character, right? Um, it's he, just Mike Myers. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just a he's just a masked. evil serial killer. But when he switches into the Catherine Newton um, character, Millie, Millie, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of potential physical comedy which was kind of goes unexplored. Right, but um, I have issue with the way that I think this comes down to directing, and I guess this movie being rushed. It's like it needs another rewrite, or it needed more time in prep. But when the um, Vince Vaughn gives an amazing performance as a teenage girl, right? But he's not playing Millie. He's not playing Catherine Newton. He is playing an archetypical teenage girl. Catherine Newton gives a very specific, way more like muted, reserved kind of performance. And yeah. you know that the And it's a space in this the film elucidates is drawn from tragedy. Yeah, because early on, you know, they spend a lot of time focusing on her family dynamic and um, you know, the she is not extroverted. Yeah, from, she's because she's yeah. she's she's very introverted, and be, because you know of, of the family dynamic where they've had this recently deceased father, and her her mother is latching onto her too much. But then suddenly, when Vince Vaughn uh, is playing her, Vince Vaughn Vince Vaughn plays it more like her rival. Um, I think her name was Rilo. A Rilo. Yeah, yeah. The the like the typical ver- extroverted. <sighs> Loud, the mean, the mean girl. So what yeah, yeah. Thinking the Vince Vaughn is playing a teenage girl. He's yeah. not actually playing the character or the actor that he swapped into. Yeah. And on the other side of that equation, Catherine Newton, when she becomes the serial killer, is like this malevolently mumbling, droning, 
almost like monosyllabic. Yeah, she, um, she like, almost becomes like becomes she's like friends and like she kind of becomes know. an introverted like. You but, but, know. but but not just that. Like at the, the opening scenes with her, it's like it's, it's yeah. like she doesn't know it's how to the best scene. Or the she, best well, some of the best scenes. Of the look, movie. it's funny. She's like pouring cereal down her face and like she's she's not forming full sentences. She's just talking like she's a movie monster. But then later on, it turns out that Vince Vaughn is actually very articulate and like a cunning genius. So yeah. which one is it? Okay, this is this, this is movie actually, just needs this, to re- this, rewrite this is, to smooth things out. This is my biggest problem with the film. A lot of horror films do this. This jumps back and forth. Usually, it's one or the other of characters who are stupid suddenly for the purpose of going smart, or characters who are smart suddenly going stupid. This has it always. It goes back and forth with both characters. Yeah. It was so frustrating for me when it was just Catherine Newton. With the serial killer and Catherine Newton's body, just like just as Mike Myers would do, as we saw Vince Vaughn doing the opening scenes, just going for people, just, just trolling and to, killing. To, to, to killing, fine. But then, as soon as something switched and they had to defend themselves, they managed to be incredibly smart and clever, articulate, and turn into. Um, there's a scene in the hallway where, yes, it's funny, but not funny within the film because it makes absolutely no sense. It's where like suddenly this uh, person... intelligence switch. Flicks the idiot yeah. ball gets flicked around. Beforehand, he was basically a caveman with a club, yeah, going mean, around killing people and and like. And that's what I'm thinking when you're talking about missed opportunity. There talking. is so much opportunity for comedy where you know suddenly this person who c- cannot be articulate would have to defend themselves, and feel like they need to fit in, but they're dumb. So like you know, there's so much potential for physical comedy where they will have to get out of certain situations. Yeah. But without using their brain yeah. or without trying to be clever about it. And just on the pl- thing of dumb plotting, I know that the whole premise of the film is based on some Aztec ritual, which isn't really explained. And it didn't, it's stupid and I broad. Loved, and it doesn't, that was and it didn't love need to be. I love the cheesy VFX for the Mayan thing, by the way. Yeah. And it didn't need to be explained. But for the, perp- for the film to go ahead as it does, and this isn't a spoiler, it happens in the first few minutes, it requires both characters to not not switch bodies when they meet but switch bodies when they wake up the following day mm-hmm. i know it's for the setup of the film but even in amidst the stupidity of it's this broad aesthetic which would can explain that it was for such convenience made no sense no, yeah, there are yeah, a lot yeah. of just leaps of logic yeah, that you're not just, supposed to yeah, but like that that happens, that I, I, I know but it, 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 it could have well. been just takes a little bit, bit more re- more writing. A little bit, little bit more creative. A lot of this film could have been so much better with a little bit more creativity. Yeah. Um, the scene I referred earlier to, the one the one outstanding sequence in the film, is the entirety of a sequence in an arcade, which absolutely nails the tone between the schlocky, actual horror, but schlockiness of it, where they go through this um, fear tunnel yeah, and cool. characters have to confront each other. There's an amazing scene where um, involving the um, villain in Catherine Newton's body and a mother and son, which is very funny and played to great comedic effect. Um, yeah. Otherwise, there's no just great. I, I, I did like the dynamic between Millie and her mother. Can I just there's, say there's, no. there's a scene in a change room which could have been awkward, but actually is played up to a little white emotive effect, and I like that. I, look, there weren't too many great ones. That though. scene for me did not work at all because I just found it to be too ridiculous. Like, um, we know the mom's a little bit eccentric. But no, no one who's survived that long in retail would just keep talking that long to a person in a change room and start opening up their heart. And, and it just pushed uh, it. After what she'd been through that year and that day, I can accept it. I'm sorry. I just couldn't. It's like, you're fired. Sorry, get out of the shop. Like, she's just, she's talking to a person getting changed who is try like I feel, I feel like you, we're you, getting you a take bit it, too critical. You can this, say this, I'm being this nitpicky, film is... but for me, that this scene was, like, completely ridiculous. I, I know, but... 
Also, um, this film is in kind of an old-fashioned, but it, it's fun rom. Yeah, yeah, but that doesn't mean that. So is Scream, and Scream nailed everything. Right, I'm going to get into that in a moment. Okay, it doesn't just because the movie's fun, and it is fun, and it is a romp that I enjoyed, but that I don't think it takes away from like the feeling of suddenly a scene rolls along when you're like, ah, oh, what a missed opportunity. You know, it's just frustrating because yes, it is good, but it's good because it's so safe. You know, like it it doesn't aim high and it basically pulls it off. Vince Vaughn has a lot to do with why it's good. Um, Vince Vaughn was waiting for this movie for a long, long time. He did so many bad dramatic roles and so many comedic roles. And this is something where he actually gets to marry both of those. So he clearly enjoyed himself. I believe he would have signed up to this without having read the script, honestly, just given the premise. The reason why the the scene with the change room with Vince Vaughn in serial killer body hiding out and talking to the mother um, bugs me so much is because it seems like writing contrivance to get to the heartfelt moment it's like they've it's like they've got the the all the groundwork's been done the heartfelt moment can come out without you needing to make this really contrived in terms of how the characters act you know it's like the whole all um emotional resolution between these two characters basically happens in this one scene where one person's hiding out in a change room if it was like a little bit um going on there and then okay i'll you know i'll leave you fine but it just keeps going on. It's like, here's the one space in the narrative that we've decided to slow down for the emotional part and I'm going to lay it all out on the table whether or not this is realistic or not. Again, things that just need a little bit more time in the rewrite room. You know, like there's just a lot of things throughout that need yeah, to be smoothed out. There's a lot of lazy writing here. I mean, I yeah. know it's it's not just similar criticism of Mank, but this is a perfectly entertaining film. It was mildly entertaining in most respects, with a great premise and some great bits, which I just couldn't thoroughly enjoy if I'm memorable because there simply weren't enough individual good scenes. There wasn't enough to keep my real momentum and real engagement. I would never watch this again. It's too safe, right? Like, uh, even just down to the conception of the film, um, she goes into the killer body and then, um, you know, the movie wants to be scary and tense but also wants to operate in the comedy department. So they, they basically have it that... Um, serial killer Catherine Newton only kills the people who are rivals to actual Catherine Newton or who have antagonized her in some way and who you've been set up because of your identification with Millie to dislike. Whereas something like Scream, which is still hitting that horror comedy romp kind of um, area, is prepared to be a bit upsetting in terms of who gets killed off, you know? Like it shows that it's you don't, very convenient. It, yeah, it shows that you don't have to play it so safe. You're allowed to take people into more uncomfortable areas without messing up the tone. But I guess Wes Craven I mean, is I mean, just I a mean, much better director than. I mean, there was one opportunity. Langan, at least based on there was one opportunity Spain. where a character which which uh, Millie uh, cared about could have been killed off, but the, the movie wasn't prepared to prepared to go there. It yeah. wasn't prepared to make us feel really sad for anyone. Yeah. I, I, I do respect that the film set up plausible reasons in the logic of this universe as to how serial killer Millie would have encountered those bad people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, she's picked on all the time. Yeah, but, but again, it's still. like it's missed opportunities. Um, there's a, a bit of a Heather's homage in this film of playing Kay Sarah Sarah when she goes into high school, which opens and closes Heather's when suddenly the serial killer uh, Millie enters, which leads to that point of, of like, is this like the real Millie coming out and get, getting revenge and killing the bullies like in Heather's? It would be cool, you know, without actually saying that's what's happening, it would have been cool to explore that a little bit more, right? 
Like that thematically, that's kind of interesting. If it's like I, you know, and you could have had it like, "Hey, Millie, guess what? I cleaned up your life for you and did everything that that you've always secretly wanted to do." Or what? You know, I don't. I don't think Millie would actually yeah. secretly. I, want, I'm just, I, I'm just I, fan fiction. I complete you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I'm just fan fiction writing the the confrontation no, no, scene. No, 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 the the movie is... could have lent into this kind of interesting material, but it, it or, never quite goes to in the or interesting even, even more interesting uh, the. The reverse body swap happens a lot earlier, and she have to have to clean it, it up. It, it, it is just actually Millie, and then she goes around killing all her evil ones. But when everyone else thinks it's the serial killer in her body, well, that's a totally different movie now, so I won't comment on that. Yeah, <laughs> but that would be interesting as well. I'm just saying, like, if it's if it's there's a lot more. This is the basic problem with the film. As soon as you get past the very good premise, it's Freaky Friday it goes it's into Friday the Thirteenth. Other films that that's you it. have already seen. And all the all the all the characters, the best friends, the teachers. Granted, it's that great guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's not yeah, a lot hey, of creativity. It's it's Ferris's friend best who he screws over, isn't it? Yeah, who crashes the car. Yeah, damn. Yeah, that's now right. Now that you mention it, it's like, whoa. I don't know. I'd see that. Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. it took me it took me a few minutes. It's like, I, I like that all those actors are now old enough to be the teachers and parents yeah, yeah. In, in these movies, that's cool. Riverdale style. Yep. So that is freaky. Do we have? I don't think really more to say on it. It's just. It's a. F- it's fun. It, I, I'd. I'd say. I will, I will not say that it's bad or that it's not fun. I, I'd qualify that it's for f- only for f- real fans, semi serious, at least semi serious fans of the genre. This isn't something to introduce you or be an accessible film to either of these genres if that's what you're looking for or going for. I, I liked it. It was. It was really hot over the weekend. It was terrible weather. It's. It was enjoyable. I didn't have to use too much of my brain cells, and I did laugh a bit. And Vince Vaughn was fun. So Vince Vaughn is such a good actor, and as Glenn said when we were discussing this, it gives you the gamut of Vince Vaughn's acting ability. You know, it's like, or maybe it was someone else who said that, but it's like, you know, scary Vaughn, intense Vaughn, funny yeah. Vaughn, a bit of a mix. I mean, the last film I remember Vince Vaughn was from that Jennifer Aniston movie, the, the breakup, the breakup, or the changeup, or whatever. The break, the the breakup. Yeah, he's made films since then. You know, he was really good in Hacksaw Ridge. Like, oh yeah, he's actually <laughs> extremely good in that. Actually, in that, <laughs> he's extremely good in that. He's, he's great. It's probably his best performance. Yeah, he's a great actor. He's a great actor. Um, so is Catherine Noonan. They're good. I just wish they had better material. Yeah. So that is freaky. It is in cinemas now. Mank is streaming from tomorrow. And let us know what you want us to fight about. Yeah. Have a good one, everyone. Good one. Enjoy movies. Enjoy streaming. Stay out of the heat. Don't steal scripts. <laughs> good night. Good night.